Section 79 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Veronica Mead. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Problematic Cases, Part 1. Walton Dwight, Part 1. Problematic Cases. Indeterminate, Disputable, Puzzling, Nonproven. Walton Dwight. Colonel Walton Dwight was a prominent and respected citizen of Binghamton, New York, for many years. He was proprietor of one of its local newspapers, was at one time mayor of the city, and had been colonel of a regiment from that part of the state during the war. He was a large real estate operator, having built a section of Binghamton known as Dwightville, and also a handsome hotel called the Dwight House, which was surrounded by 50 cottages. The city had no more public-spirited and no more popular citizen. He was a man of commanding presence, six feet three in height, of large frame, weight, 225 pounds, age 41, and apparently in robust health. His biographers describe him as a splendid fellow, and he described himself as a man accustomed to bore with a big auger. His business operations had always been on a grand scale, and largely based on borrowed money. According to his own sworn statement, he had lived at the rate of $18,000 a year, and had accumulated $400,000 of debt, besides dissipating his wife's fortune and rendering her insolvent to a large, if not almost an equal amount. He finally was beset on all sides by creditors, members of his wife's family being among the most rapacious and exacting. In testimony given in 1878 during the bankruptcy proceedings, which he had instituted for his relief, he swore as follows. I received a notice that Duesenberry, his wife's uncle, was about to sell the equity interest in this estate, thereby sweeping the last plank from under me. Again he said, It was just like killing me, and I felt as though I was sold out by everybody and everything. At another time, in the same proceedings, he stated, under oath, that he had bought $8 on the face of the earth, and his wife but $2, and that he was borrowing money from his brother Ward to pay the bills for board of himself and his wife at the Spalding House. When Dwight was in the plenitude of power, his kinsfolk and his neighbors in Broome County regarded him as something little short of a demigod. He was king of the commons, and in their admiring eyes the king could do no wrong. When his vast enterprises came to naught, and he was stranded, a financial wreck, the willing subjects of his autocracy had full faith in his ability to rebound with acrobatic elasticity, and in his own good time, from the seat of restored credit and affluence, to survey the gulf of misfortune from which he had safely emerged. But that gulf was so broad and deep that even this man of wonderful grasp and apparently limitless capacity was appalled by its magnitude. He wore a mask to conceal the disquietude that was consuming him, and none, not even his inmates, could penetrate the disguise, and discover that the old pluck and manhood and self-reliance were slipping away from him. His wealthy father-in-law, with confidence in his reactive vigor, offered him his check for a quarter of a million. With characteristic pride and hauteur, he refused it. In this refusal, he knew that he was giving another illustration of the proverb, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Perhaps he foresaw that even with that bountiful help, the gulf could not be bridged, that it was impassable for him. Those who take this view will judge his refusal mildly, 
Yet under any view of the circumstances, the question comes up, how can such exhibition of pride in declining the generosity of the father-in-law be reconciled with the total absence of pride which found expression and willingness to father his debts upon the life insurance companies? For that he came to this resolve as the speediest means of extrication from the disheartening consequences of his bankruptcy, either by the sacrifice of a life, which for him was no longer worth living, or by its pretended sacrifice, the substitution of another body, and his escape to a foreign country, those who closely watched the course of events fully believed. Those who took the latter view still adhered to it in the lapse of years with unshaken pertinacity. The asservations of the Brougham County adherents and pensioners, the declaration of doctors, the disputation of lawyers, the confident theories of detectives, the affirmations and negations of expert testimony have never altered their convictions. Nevertheless, there was much in his conduct, his voluntary exposure, for example, to pneumonia by repeatedly swimming across the Susquehanna in very cold weather, and his persistence in taking excessive quantities of morphia and gelsemium, particularly the latter, to point to a fixed purpose of self-destruction. It was testified to upon the stand that in the last weeks of his life he declared that he would rather be in hell than be poor. Colonel Dwight was not discharged from bankruptcy until November 6th, nine days before his death, but on the 31st day of July he began to apply for life insurance as an available means of providing for his obligations, and before the middle of September he had made formal applications to 31 companies for a sum in the aggregate of $390,000, requiring annual premiums of about $13,000. 21 companies accepted the risk, as noted herewith, for an amount requiring annual premium payments of eight or $9,000. Equitable, NY, $50,000. Manhattan, NY, $20,000. Mutual Benefit, NJ, $15,000. Northwestern, Milwaukee, $15,000. Germania, NY, $15,000. Etna, Con, ten thousand. New York, NY, ten thousand. Union Mutual, Maine, ten thousand. Travelers, Con, ten thousand. National, Vermont, ten thousand. Washington, NY, ten thousand. New England, Boston, ten thousand. Berkshire, Pittsfield, ten thousand. United States, NY. 10,000. Massachusetts, Springfield, 10,000. Metropolitan, NY, 10,000. Carried forward, $225,000. Brought forward, $225,000. State Mutual, Mass, 10,000. National, USA, 5,000. Homeopathic, NY, 5,000. Home, NY, 5,000. Brooklyn, NY, 5,000. Total, $255,000. This noble specimen of manhood was so popular in his own community that his neighbors scornfully resented the imputations that followed these transactions. Yet some of them could easily recall how when he was only 28, he inveigled the cautious fossils of the Broome County Bank into furnishing the sum of $300,000 to purchase pine timber land in Canada. 
and how he bought the land for much less money, and how he refused to return the balance, and how when suit was brought to recover, the jury disagreed, and how with the swag, that is the word in such cases, he bought the Dickinson's property known as the Orchard, and invested in an extended plan of improvements, and how on one occasion when his family were away visiting, and no one was left at home but himself, the mansion and contents, insured for $35,000, were destroyed by fire soon after he had quitted the house to rejoin the family. These and similar incidents were, possibly, susceptible of satisfactory explanation by his adherents. What the insurance companies more particularly wanted in the later scenes of dramatic performance was an explanation of the false answers in the application by which they were deceived. Taking the application of the company that came forward to stand a trial test, the Germania, as a type, Colonel Dwight answered the questions here appended as follows. 1. In what occupation has he been engaged during the last 10 years? Answer. Real estate and grain dealer. 2. Is he now, or has he been, engaged in or connected with the manufacture or sale of any beer, wine, or other intoxicating liquors? Answer. No. 3. Whether the party to be assured is now, or has been, insured in other companies, in which, and for what amount in each, state exactly on what kind of policy? Answer. Yes. Mutual NY. 15-year endowment. $10,000. Connecticut Mutual, Ordinary Life, $15,000. Washington, Ordinary Life, $10,000. Equitable, Ordinary Life, $10,000. 4. Whether an assurance has been applied for with this or any other company without having led to an assurance. If so, with which companies, and for what reason did the application not lead to an assurance? Answer, no. 5. Has the party now or has the same ever had any of the following diseases? Spitting of blood, bronchitis, consumption, etc. Answer, no. 1. It was in evidence that Colonel Dwight, during his bankruptcy proceedings in 1878, swore that his whole occupation from 1872 consisted in fighting his lawsuits and keeping the Dwight house. 2. It was proved, and not disputed, that he sold liquors during the whole period of time which he kept the Dwight house. 3. It was proved, and not disputed, that he never was insured in the mutual life of New York, nor in the Connecticut mutual life. 4. It was proved, and not disputed, that he had made applications to the Phoenix Mutual Life Insurance Company, and others, which had not led, and never did lead, to an assurance. 5. It was proved by several witnesses that he had, in March 1867, severe cough with the repeated spitting of blood, amounting in at least one instance of a copious hemorrhage, and that he had repeatedly said that he had had hemorrhages from the lungs, also that he expected the damned thing would carry him off. This testimony was not disputed by the plaintiff, who freely admitted the spitting of blood, but claimed that it was not a disease. At the apex of one lung, at the first autopsy, was found a cicatrix or fibrous nodule, a lesion which was noted on the official notes subscribed to by the 15 physicians presented as being probably the result of old pulmonary thesis. The truth of the answers to the foregoing questions was warranted in the usual form, and under the usual stipulation that if any of the answers in the application were in any respect untrue, the policy should be null and void. If the Germania and the associated companies had chosen to contest payment on the ground of such deception, they could have successfully resisted a claim. The law in New York State requires the judge to decide upon legal points, and not to allow a case to go to the jury when there is no conflict of testimony. 
but the companies were not willing to win the case upon purely technical grounds. Their contention was based upon the conviction that fraud had been perpetuated, which called for retributive justice. Resistance was in the interest of good morals and public policy, as well in defense of the funds that belonged to honest policyholders. The circumstances attending Dwight's insurance and his succeeding death or disappearance were, to view them in the most charitable light, suspicious. The large insurance upon his life required an amount of ready money for periodical payments beyond his reach. The second quarter's premiums were nearly due. As he was short of means, there was a danger of lapse. He had procured his discharge in bankruptcy, and in that way, a clearance of indebtedness amounting to $400,000, so that in case of his death, his creditors could not touch a cent of the insurance money, and an immediate death would save the policies from lapse. He had his hair and beard, of which he had always been very proud, suddenly cut off, which rendered him unrecognizable to many of his nearest acquaintances. He sent his son away. He had with him an accomplice, a man named Charles W. Hall, who was notorious as a promoter of the Cardiff giant fraud, and this individual testified to having been the only witness of the colonel's death. He made a will distributing money in such a way as would most likely promote deception and create a strong public sentiment favorable to the testator. $10,000 was given for Christmas dinners for the poor, $7,500 for a library, $1,000 for an annual dinner for the newspaper men, $3,000 for the Binghamton Fire Department, $5,000 to the coroner who was to hold the inquest upon the body, and $10,000 to the surrogate who was to pass upon the will. Why should money have been left to these officials? Is it customary for men in making wills to insert bequests to coroners and surrogates? Did not such an extraordinary procedure, taken in connection with the other circumstances, justify the suspicion that it was a piece of strategy to buy the indulgent consideration of these officials? In espousing his cause, they would contend vigorously for their promised inheritance. With the vigor which characterized the administration of the United States Life Insurance Company, its executive officers soon acquired evidence to invalidate the claims of these beneficiaries. They had direct and collateral proof of his pulmonary hemorrhages, they had acknowledgments over his own signature, and corroborative statements from others. In an answer to the question, has the party had spitting or coughing of blood, Dwight answered no, but added on the margin, see no. When asked in the course of correspondence for explanation of this direction, he said that he had taken a very serious cold ten years before, and the cough was so violent as to start blood from the nose and throat. Nevertheless, he did not consider that it was worth taking into account, and therefore answered in the negative. Whether it was of little amount, when taken in connection with his truthful admissions, may be inferred from one sentence in the report of the autopsy made by Dr. Delafield. He said, Upper lobe, right lung, at apex, several small, fibrous nodules, probably the result of old pulmonary thysis. Upon discovery of the leading features of the history, the president of the company, Mr. T. H. Brosnan, sent an agent to Binghamton to inform Dwight of the detection of his misrepresentations. They had traced his footsteps through his devious windings, and they had learned why, when sick even unto death, and under medical surveillance, he stole away from home under cover of night and took a sleeping car for New York City. The agent was instructed to tender return of the quarterly premiums and to demand surrender of the policy, which, under the deception that had been practiced, would be regarded as null and void. The agent was treated with defiance, and surrender was contemptuously refused. This Hector, 
understood his rights, and knew what he was doing. The company preferred to fight it out during the lifetime of the aggressor. The arrogant colonel preferred to leave a legacy of litigation and to take the chances of a stained and clouded reputation. During the month of September and the first ten days of October, 1878, Colonel Dwight spent most of his time in hunting in the neighborhood of Windsor, New York, over a country which is extremely hilly or semi-mountainous. About October 11th, it was announced that he was unwell. News of his alleged illness reaching the insurance companies, their suspicions were aroused, and Dr. Charles H. Porter was sent to see him on November 6th. Dr. Porter found, after very careful examination, nothing abnormal with any of the organs of Colonel Dwight, and obtained from Dwight's physician, in his presence, the history of an obscure illness in which the only objective symptoms had been some vomiting and some evidence of a parasism, said to resemble an attack of pernicious fever, but which had lasted only a few minutes in which the temperature had not risen above or fallen below 98.5 degrees, and the pulse not over 80. Suspecting that Colonel Dwight might be suffering from chronic arsenical poisoning, Dr. Porter asked for the usual chemical analysis, but was met with a reply that Fowler's solution was being administered and that therefore arsenic would of necessity be exhibited in the renal secretion. The evidence for the defense gave no account of what occurred in the history of Colonel Dwight between the 6th and 15th of November. In order to obtain some information concerning the day of his death, Mrs. Owens, a sister of Mrs. Dwight, was placed upon the stand. According to her statement, the apartments occupied by Colonel Dwight were in a semi-detached cottage which formed a part of the Spalding House in Binghamton. They consisted of a sitting room, entered directly from a corridor, and communicating with a bedroom which was furnished with one window opening upon the ground. In the sitting room was an open fire or stove. The bed in the chamber had a high headboard of such a character that it would be easily possible for a man to hang himself whilst in bed. During the day of November 15th, Colonel Dwight was up, dressed, saw various persons in his sitting room, executed legal papers in a clear, bold hand, was bathed, and had his beard cut off by a barber. Between 8 and 9 o'clock p.m., Mr. Charles A. Hall made his appearance. About half past nine, Dr. D. S. Burr called, chatted a few moments, and then left. Mrs. Dwight and Mrs. Owens left the room a few minutes after the doctor, Colonel Dwight bidding them good night. They retired to their room on the other side of the corridor, where they slept together. At about half past eleven, they were aroused by a rap upon the door. Mrs. Dwight instantly arose and went to her husband's room, Mrs. Owens following in two or three minutes. Mrs. Owens found in the room Mr. Hall, W.F. Spaulding, the proprietor of the hotel, and Mrs. Dwight. Colonel Dwight gave no sign of life after she entered. He was supported on pillows, and Mr. Spaulding was trying to give him brandy, but desisted in a few minutes, saying that he could not swallow it. At the suggestion of someone, hot water was obtained and Colonel Dwight's hands were put into it. Something over half an hour after Mrs. Owens went to the room, the undertaker arrived. Mrs. Dwight and Mrs. Owens then went into another room and went to bed. In order to complete the story at this point, it is necessary to draw on the evidence furnished by Neri Pine, the attorney of Colonel Dwight, who was put upon the stand by the plaintiff. He stated that on November 15th, he called on Colonel Dwight to transact certain legal business and to inquire concerning the funds for the payment of the second quarter's premium, which would be due on the 19th. Colonel Dwight replied that he had no money to pay it, but that he, Mr. Pine, had better see Mr. Doonesbury, his father-in-law, 
who he, Dwight, thought would advance the necessary funds. Mr. Nary Pine further stated that Colonel Dwight gave him no reason for supposing that any arrangement had been perfected with Mr. Doonesbury, but told him that he was going to make arrangements with his father-in-law. By the morning after this interview, death had to all appearances rendered unnecessary any call by Mr. Nary Pine upon Mr. Doonesbury's good nature. End of section 79